You may find that I say some controversial things in this morning's sermon. Here are the first few. Generally, books are better than the movies. More controversial. While I know this to be true, at least in my opinion, I tend to prefer movies over the books themselves. And uh, one particular uh, series of novels uh, that has been made movies uh, that many people say the books are so good and the movies fall so short, and I know this to be true, and I still have not really given a thorough reading to them, is C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It was read to me as a child, and I enjoyed it, but as an adult, I have just simply not uh, read through it. But I still find some helpful analogies and pictures and illustrations in the movies that I see, Uh, and some of even the quotes have made their way down to me, and uh, a few of those things I think are relevant for our passage today. So in the book and the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, it begins under the spell of uh, the witch, and the way that it is described Everything is frozen over in the land of Narnia, and the way it's described is it's always winter and never Christmas. Always winter and never Christmas. Uh, But then, as the story goes on, things begin to thaw. People begin to thaw. Spring returns, and the people have hope building as they gather armies to go confront the witch. And the thing that causes the people to have hope is they hear a message And that message is, Aslan is on the move. Well, our verses this morning come at a very dark time in Israel's history. They come at the heels of great judgment told by the prophet Isaiah. And yet, our message today is that word of hope for the people to cling to. I think you'll find that in our passage. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Isaiah 9. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses this morning. Uh, This week marks the beginning of a short series uh, through the month in various texts in the prophet Isaiah, taking a little break from the book of Galatians through December. Uh, As we approach Christmas, now there's a historic tradition in the church called Advent that's just taken from the word, the Latin word Adventus, and that simply means coming. And so Christians in history have used the term to celebrate the coming of Jesus, to celebrate the incarnation, which we celebrate on Christmas morning. Well, this week our text comes from uh, Isaiah 9, which you'll likely recognize uh, because the phrases and the verses used in in this passage are frequently quoted around Christmas time about Jesus. They're also quoted in the New Testament. Uh, You might remember them from famous songs. Uh, My favorite, or at least one of my favorites, I should say, uh, comes from Handel's Messiah. As with any text, though, it is surrounded by a context that I think deepens the meaning uh, of the words. My hope is that as we study what this text meant for Isaiah and his original audience, it will deepen our own appreciation for Christ coming into the world, which we celebrate Uh, at the end of this month. With that in mind, let's read our text together now. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. It says this. 
but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, oppre- of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. If you've never read through the book of Isaiah before, I should say this up front. Understanding and interpreting it does not come quite as naturally or easily to us. The genre of prophecy to us in our day is quite foreign. It's not part of your typical K through 12 curriculum. Uh, Isaiah can also be hard to understand because it was written in the 7th to 8th century BC. Uh, Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of multiple kings, which you can read in the first verse. And his specific role was to be a messenger from God to the people of Israel Israel to pronounce salvation, but salvation that would only occur after and through great judgment. Great judgment the people had brought upon themselves because of idolatry and sinful living and alliances with other nations. Uh, Now you might wonder, just right off the bat, what's so bad about alliances with other nations? Seems like it's a good thing to pursue peace nationally. Uh, That that seems, how could that be bad? Uh, But it's important here to know uh, that in Israel's day, at this time, The nation's kingdom or military could not be separated from the God of the nation. Meaning, for Israel to partner with, say, for example, Egypt, it was to rely on another nation's gods or idols as well. These political agreements often led to uh, the taking of wives into the households of Israelites. Uh, They became corrupt as a nation as their gods would come along with them. And the, the first five chapters of Isaiah are basically long judgments against the people of God in the northern and the southern kingdom. Uh, the book of Isaiah could therefore be understood as his answer to the question, will the sin of God's people compromise his promises to them? Will the sin of God's people compromise his promises to them? And the answer in summary is no, they won't. As terrible as Israel's sin was during this time, 
God would still be faithful to fulfill his promises to the patriarchs. But that doesn't mean there will not be necessary judgment first. And with that in mind, there's three things I think we can look to or take away from this text that I want to show you. First is the darkness of the world. Second, the joy of the light. And third, the peace of the sun. My prayer is that as we walk through these themes in the passage, the coming of Christ, as I said, will be all the more glorious to you this year. And the result will be a longing for faith to be made sight in heaven. So first, point one, the darkness of the world. Verses one and two, the darkness of the world. Uh, These words are being proclaimed to a people in a very dark place. Uh, Look with me uh, up at chapter 8. Verses 18 through 22, Isaiah says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness." Israel as a people have left the counsel of their God. That's what's being described here. They have instead gone to mediums and necromancers. And the image that Isaiah uses to describe uh, this is thick darkness. No dawn, not even the light of dawn is there. Uh, If you wake up before the sun actually rises and you see it peek over the horizon, uh, there's quite a bit of light uh, in dawn. But that's not what Isaiah says to describe the people of Israel. Instead, complete, thick darkness. And the people are living in darkness because he says they are walking in it. They're hungry. Uh, They're not friendly towards God, but angry. They speak contemptuously against him. And we didn't read it, but uh, verse 16 of chapter 8 says that God has turned his face away from them. It is not as though there's simply no sunshine. It is as if Israel has gone back into slavery of other gods. And the language that is used is reminiscent both of slavery in Egypt and explicitly of the events that Isaiah calls the former times in verse 1. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, just a quick uh, geographical note for you to make. These are the most northern parts uh, in the land of Israel meaning they're the land that's right up against all of the, all of the foreign nations. Uh, they happen to be right next to the Sea of Galilee, which meant it was a very popular trade route uh, to come across to the Mediterranean Sea and then down to Egypt. And so at times in Israel's history, uh, that land uh, was basically conquered and Israel was taken into uh, subjectivity uh, by Midian, and that's what they're talking about, and we'll, we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Uh, But Zebulun and Naphtali, they're the furthest north. And in Isaiah's day, the current threat is the Assyrian Empire. And shortly after Isaiah delivers these prophecies, the Assyrians do, in fact, come across 
and take the land and turn everyone who lives there into slaves. But the darkness Isaiah speaks of in these verses is not just a national problem for northern Israel. It's a problem of everyone who rebels against God. It's a result of darkened hearts that seek the pleasures of the world. This darkness is not something that happened to Israel just once, but happened to all humanity all over the world ever since that first sin in the Garden of Eden. For anyone who has who is driven by their own desire and emotions. They'll give themselves over to sin because they, we all have sin in our hearts. We're by nature children of wrath because we followed the course of the world. This is the darkness that is exemplified here in the nation of Israel. Now, the world wants you to think that it's advanced and incredibly moral and sophisticated, but we don't have to look very far to see the evil uh, in the world, do we? We don't need to stretch the imagination when it comes to the darkness that exists. There's always been wars, for example. Uh, if peace is ever accomplished, it's usually very temporary. Uh, there's always been killing. There's always been slavery and hatred. I, feel, I fear at times the direction of our culture will move over the next few generations because uh, the evil of the world is downloadable today, accessible by anyone anywhere. Never before has the world been so known and watched uh, like it is today. Uh, friends, the Bible teaches that the reason for such darkness, the reason peace is never truly found, is because of sin. The whole world, not just Israel, uh, during the time of Isaiah, does not look to God for fulfillment or for joy, for happiness. Instead, it seeks those things in the creation itself, uh, in what is temporary and insufficient, what leads, uh, leaves us wanting more. Well, God made everything with a purpose. Uh, as we as humans were created to portray his goodness to the world, and the world was created so that we might worship God and give thanks to him, but when we live in unbelief, we do the opposite. Uh, we live for ourselves instead and our foolish hearts are darkened. At the root of it all, Israel's darkness and the darkness of the world today is due to the sin of unbelief or faith, uh, simply trust. Uh, Israel decided not to trust the Lord to win their battles and instead to trust foreign nations. And so they make a partnership with Egypt. They're afraid of the Assyrians. They trust in their own goodness. But we today do the same thing. Uh, we trust in our own goodness. We seek fulfillment based on our, our pleasure, our own desires, rather than what God word and God's word instructs for us. This is certainly true uh, of anyone who has uh, rejected Christ. Uh, God has said that we should listen to his son, but to reject the son is to reject the father. It's to remain in darkness and unbelief. And we can find all the excuses we want, but at the end of the day, it's rejection of God himself. I like the way uh, one pastor said it. He said, the world tries to put a good face on unbelief, but at the end of the day, it's just makeup on a corpse. So Christian, do you try to put a good face on unbelief when it enters into your life? You're just putting makeup on a corpse. 
This world has always been in darkness and will continue until Christ returns. But there's one other aspect of this darkness I want you to think about, and that is the fact that the very language is picked up by the authors of the New Testament, specifically Jesus, as one of the primary metaphors for hell. We often think about the fire and and, uh, the lake of fire, but the other main image used to describe hell in the New Testament is a place of outer darkness, utter darkness. It's a place of despair and anguish, a place with no joy, no health, no peace, just pain and discomfort and loneliness and darkness. It's a place absent of the grace of God, just weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, this description of Israel walking in deep darkness is just a microcosm of all who are in rebellion against God, uh, who hold him in contempt. The darkness of this world is just a a foretaste, a prejudgment, if you will, of the eternal darkness that awaits those who do not receive the light. So, friends, how can we apply this theme of darkness in the world into our lives? Well, first, uh, don't go searching for ultimate joy in a world of darkness. You'll stumble. There are many good gifts, but when we make them ultimate for joy, uh, we turn away from the light and stumble. Oh, the feeling that you have, have to have something, whether it be an accomplished career or that nice car, that dream house, at the end of the day, it's to say that God is not enough to have happiness in this life. God is not enough to have ultimate and true joy. It is instead to rely on something else completely like Israel relied on neighboring nations for security. But the good news for us is that God promises to put an end to the darkness. Oh, the promises, he promises true light, but it won't be found in anything other than the fulfillment of his promise in the light that he brings. Now, to, look at, to look for the light anywhere else is to look for the sun in a dark cave. A second way to apply this to our lives, as Christians, we should talk about sin freely. Uh, I prayed for this in our pastoral prayer as I was reflecting on it. Uh, This is an odd application uh, to make. Uh, I recognize it might sound strange. Uh, But there are many who feel that it's culturally and politically incorrect to talk about sin. It's not polite, can be awkward, can be... Uh, perceived as foreign. But friends, we need to remind ourselves of the sin that exists in the world and the sin even that we find in our own hearts to reorient ourselves around the gospel. And we need to continue to train ourselves to acknowledge sin so we remember to run from it and to actively pursue a life of holiness. We need to have an effective witness in the world about the nature-changing power of Jesus that change that he has made in our own hearts by his spirit. We can only be salt and light in the world if we have experienced change from the world. We can only be changed by Christ himself. Well, that's the darkness of the world. Uh, But that quickly moves us into what is the primary focus in this passage, which is the joy of the light in verses 3 through 5. The joy of the light. Uh, you may or may not have noticed, but Isaiah speaks about the darkness in past tense. 
And even the light coming to dispel the darkness in the past tense as a way to emphasize the surety that the light will come. It is so sure that this will happen that Isaiah speaks as if it had already happened. For us as Christians who believe that Jesus himself is the light of the world, the very fulfillment of this passage, it has happened already. But before we get to Jesus himself, I want us to see just a few characteristics of the light and the effect that it has on the people. Uh, Let's read again those verses 3 through 5. Isaiah says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his, for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, the first thing that we see when light comes is that joy is increased. The nation is multiplied, meaning after a nation is whittled down, in judgment by the nations that come. After they're reduced to slaves and peasants, the light will bring an increase to their numbers again. Joy will return to them. What's the point of creating a populous kingdom again if they only turn back into darkness and sorrow? Instead, the anguish and the suffering, the hunger is all gone. Instead, their joy is increased Instead of the Lord turning his face away in anger and the people standing in derision to him, they rejoice in front of him before his throne. They're pleased to be with him and happy to seek him out. They erupt in song at his throne. It's a beautiful image of a kingdom peacefully celebrating the rule of their king after a great victory. Verse 3 says they rejoice as with joy at the harvest. Uh, Meaning Israel is made up of many farmers. When the harvest comes, they know that they are going to eat. They will be full. They don't have to worry about the trade economy thriving. It's going to. It's the opposite of famine in a dry land. It's, It's abundance in a land of plenty. A sign of blessing from God and the comfort of a full belly for you and your family. He also says they are glad as when they divide the spoil. And this, uh, this language of dividing the spoil is war language. Uh, when one kingdom defeats another and has a great victory, there's a great celebration. And the kingdom that won inherits the wealth of another. War happens in darkness, but the spoils of war after the victory has been won. The enemy is vanquished. The threat is gone. There is riches for all. If anything was lacking before, there is abundance now, enough to go around. Well, that's what the people receive. But in verse 4, Isaiah describes the change of status as well, as, as well when the light comes. Uh, this is that slavery language I mentioned. The yoke of his burden, meaning the heavy labor that they were subject to before. Hard work removed. Uh, the staff For his shoulder, representing a lack of freedom. Uh, The staff represents uh, the one who directs someone where they are to go. The rod of the oppressor, representing the harsh discipline of a taskmaster. All of these things broken and gone, just as the day of Midian, he says. 
Uh, if you want to read an entertaining story, an exciting story with battles uh, and heroes and villains, read Judges 6 through 8. Uh, this is the story that Isaiah is referring to and has uh, gone down famously in Israel's history. It's mentioned in places like Psalm 83 as well as here. Uh, but it's a fast-paced narrative about multiple victories that the Lord gave Gideon. Gideon, uh, famously, uh, he's the one who uh, had about 32,000 men, and the Lord said, that's too many. They're going up against, okay, an army of 120,000. So to say 32,000 is too many is strange. Uh, but the Lord says, take less, and he divides them all the way down to 300 people. 300 people. And Gideon goes up uh, at night, and they don't even have swords. They have jars and torches and trumpets. And they blow them, and the way that uh, it's described, the Lord turns uh, the enemy's swords against each other. And they are perishing, and they're fleeing, and Gideon chases them. At one point in the story, uh, Gideon dismantles uh, an altar and a statue of Baal and uh, an Asherah. And with the wood, he builds an altar to the Lord and sets it on fire. It's amazing. Uh, Gideon is, is quite the, the man's man of the Old Testament. Uh, well, well, Gideon pursues them and eventually conquers the kings of Midian themselves. Uh, he has victory, and, and the people, they then demand that Gideon rule over them, uh, that he be their king. And the response that he gives to this request is legendary. He says in Judges 8.23, uh, when they say, you know, you be king, you rule over us, you and your grandson, he says, I will not rule over you, my son will not ru rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. And like I said, Gideon is amazing. I left a lot out. Uh, but unfortunately, the end of his life is tragic. But he's known for that great victory over oppressive Midian in the north. Uh, well, there's another image given in verse 5 about what life will be like when light comes. And it's another war image. All of these images, by the way, are exactly how heaven is described in the New Testament. So when you read passages like this and you hear about the abundance or plenty that is given, uh, the peace of no more wars... We know that that's what's promised to us in heaven for those who believe in Christ. Verse 5, this war image, the boots of a warrior, their bloodied garments will be burned as fuel for the fire. I may not be clear at first, but this is the image of, of an army, if you can imagine, just turning in all of their gear. They won a victory, they lay down all their swords, they turn it all in. Uh, this is an unusual thing because if a kingdom wants to stay in power, you don't get rid of all your swords. You need to stay strong to defend against the next person that comes up against you. But when God wins the battle, it's different. This light that is promised to the people through Isaiah. There's no more need for soldiers because the Lord has fought and won. Uh, this is a symbol of lasting peace. There will be no future battles the enemy has been completely thwarted. Now, there's a similar idea expressed in chapter 2, where Isaiah says that uh, their swords are turned to plowshares and their spears to pruning hooks. Uh, the war is over, and they all go back to farming. Uh, there was, after World War II, uh, a, a national act of uh, denazification, basically, 
Uh, and what that involved was basically removing all of the people who served in high positions of the Nazi military. Um, but I imagine they had to, uh, outside of you know, the museums, uh, I don't know exactly what they did with all the uniforms that had things like the swastika badges on them, but I imagine it wouldn't be a stretch that they probably burned them all uh, as a lesson, never to take the flag up again. Uh, they put it in a museum to learn, but, but that's the idea here. The war is over. This cause of war will never be taken up again. There will be only complete peace. So the nature or the characteristics of the light are that it multiplies the nation, it brings great joy, it removes the need to fight, it's freeing from past oppression and slavery. The effect of the light as experienced by the people is no more heavy labor, a true freedom, a kind master desiring or lacking nothing but instead having plenty, food, and health. The best of all the instruments of war are turned to ash in the flame because there's no more need for them. God promised that light would shine upon the people walking in darkness. And when Jesus came, he proclaimed to the people, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. A true peace and fullness will not occur in this fallen world, but forgiveness from sin and the promise of eternal life comes to all who believe and put their trust in Jesus. This promise of Isaiah is a promise by God to shine light on its biggest problem, which is sin that creates darkness in the world. Uh, friend, if you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, uh, I want you to know today that Jesus is the answer to all of the world's problems, including yours. Uh, if you have not ever uh, put your trust in Christ, I would love to just speak to you more at the door about what that might look like, uh, what turning away from trusting in your own self or looking for uh, happiness and satisfaction in the things of the world but not finding them. Uh, instead, trusting in Jesus, uh, whose death paid the penalty that we deserve for our sin. Well, how can we apply uh, the, the light of this passage to our lives? For us who already believe in Jesus, uh, one application is that we should transform our longings in this world and transform them into a hope in heaven. It's not wrong to desire things. It all comes uh, down to whether or not we trust the Lord to provide for our needs and whether we will be satisfied with the things that God has given us or not. But our longings in this world are meant to remind us of the giver of the gifts. They're meant to remind us that this world is a temporary place, that nothing will satisfy us ultimately. If we eat and are filled, it's only for a little while, even if it's at the best restaurant. Christians can be confident in receiving things with thankfulness or in experiencing desire for them, but that those feelings direct our hearts to heaven where we be filled with complete satisfaction, wanting nothing. Appetites full, joy complete. Uh, this is what is promised to us in heaven. So friends, when you desire something in the world today, don't idolize it. Don't cherish it. Instead, take that desire and remind yourself, this 
feeling of lacking something or desiring something is meant to point me to the person who truly satisfies through all eternity. Our greatest weapon in this life uh, is not weapons of war. Uh, It is, in fact, prayer and the word of God. Uh, So, Christian, arm yourself uh, with knowledge of God's word and with prayer. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, as it says. Well, that's the second theme of the passage. The third is the peace of the Son in verses 6 and 7. The peace of the Son. Uh, This great light will come, will shine. The hope that God has given the people through the prophet about ending their oppression. And it's not a battle plan. Uh, It's not a principle like justice. It's not a force of nature like a flood. Nor is it a particular worldview or a new law. It is a person. It is a person. In fact, not just a person, but a child. Look with me again at verses 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The bringer of this great light is a king, and one that will never leave the throne. He'll shoulder the government. He'll bear the responsibility of governing the people correctly, righteously, as a protector and ruler. But this child is going to come from a specific line and sit on the throne. He's not from any family, but from the most famous royal family in the Bible, David's family. That means not only that he will be the king of Israel, but that he will be a descendant of David himself. Israel would have known this well. This wouldn't have been that big of a surprise to them. David was anointed to be king, and when that happened, God made a promise to David that his throne would be established forever, and that God told him that he took him from a pasture to make him prince over his people, that he would raise up from him an offspring to be a son of God, and that they would have rest from their enemies. This is the great hope that was quickly shattered with Solomon and that the people had hoped for ever since. And since it is during a time of judgment and oppression that Isaiah tells the people that hope is still alive, that there will yet be a son to sit on the throne forever, this would have been a great hope for them. You know, I wonder if Isaiah had in mind the words of David when he used these images of darkness and light. David very famously in his uh, final words used this kind of language about authority. David says in 2 Samuel 23, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. 
like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout up from the earth. Does that not sound like the description of this king that rules perfectly and causes flourishing among the people? Well, much of this language in Isaiah 9 is similar to 2 Samuel 7 and 23. So it seems straightforward, but there's mystery in this passage as well. What would have been most confusing is what the child is called. Isaiah says he's called Wonderful Counselor, which, by the way, doesn't mean a really nice counselor, wonderful counselor. It means uh, really a wonder, a spectacle. His counsel or his wisdom is beyond that of this world. He exceeds worldly wisdom and instead rules with the wisdom of God. He is a supernatural counselor. It's the very wisdom of God himself. All of these four descriptions are titles. We could say that he is the amazing counselor. Isaiah also says that he will be called Mighty God. Certainly a name for God himself. A name that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe God as a warrior a one who wins battles for his people, a powerful God who crushes those underneath his feet. Now, this child will also be called Everlasting Father. Another way that God is described in relation to his people is with the relational closeness of a father. Think about Psalm 103. It's a term of compassion and endearment. He lovingly knows the needs of his people. Lastly, Prince of Peace. He's the one who establishes peace. And the peace that he brings will never depart. It cannot be taken away from him, for there will be nothing or no one to threaten it. The reason I say there's great mystery here is because the part about David is expected. Israel would have already known that, and it makes more sense. But how could the son of David, who is certainly a man, be God himself? How can God himself be a child? These things would have not been easy for the original audience to understand. But the Lord delivered on these promises to shine light into a dark world. When the little baby was born in a stable to a virgin, the nations came from far to see him. The angels sang glory to God in the highest upon his arrival. God sent a witness, John the Baptist, to go ahead of him, to bear witness, it says, about the light, that the true light, which gives light to everyone, has come into the world. And guess where Jesus began his ministry? In no other place but Galilee, the bridge between Israel and the other nations. He spoke with undeniable authority in his teachings and power in his miracles. He was perfect in every way never sinning once. And this child, the very mighty God, the Prince of Peace, willingly gave himself into the hands of his enemies. When he was crucified as a sacrifice for our sins, uh, there was a period of three hours in which supernatural darkness came over the land until he passed. About three days later, Christ got up from the grave conquering sin and death as a confirmation, appearing to his disciples and commissioning them out into the world to share the good news that those who believe in him 
will be saved from their sin. He ascended to God's right hand where he sits now ruling for all eternity. Oh, friends, the victory over darkness and sin has been defeated by the death and resurrection of Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin, but have been made sons and daughters. Everything about the light in Isaiah 9 is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who promises to keep us in him until we pass from this life into the light of eternity. Only when we are raised with Christ and our bodies are made imperishable, only then will we experience all the joys and satisfaction of heaven. The birth of Jesus is the entrance of Isaiah's great light into the world, the light that conquers the darkness, the thawing of an icy world frozen. He is the great mystery of salvation. Friends, this Christmas season, remember that the power of sin has no more claim on you. His frozen grip has thawed. Christ is the Son that was given to us through whom there is eternal peace. The Prince of Peace has come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. because of the promises that you gave to your people in a world of darkness have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. You yourself came into the world that you would save and rescue sinners. Lord, we pray that we would marvel at these truths. And Lord, we pray that we would, as a church, shine light into a dark world proclaiming the message of peace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.